Romans chapter 12, verses one, uh, 3 through 5. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 5. And hear God's holy word. For I say through the grace given to me that to everyone who is among you, Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you have once again brought your word to us in the reading and soon through the preaching, and we ask you that you might open it up to us with new power and a new perspective uh, to to lay hold of these very truths, and even may you, Holy Spirit, impart them into our hearts so that we might put them into practice, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've seen for five sermons, uh, the uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 lay the foundation of the Christian life, they also describe the Christian life all at once. And we saw these five principles for living the Christian life. We are to uh, present our bodies a living sacrifice to God. And so we're offering ourselves, even our own bodies, unto Him always. That's what it is to live for God. Number two, this is our reasonable service or our spiritual worship. Number three, we are told not to be conformed to this world. Number four, but to be transformed by the renewing. Of our mind, and number five, as we saw last time, that we might prove what is that uh, that uh, that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So the will of God is central in our lives as Christian people. That's our starting point. So we've laid the foundation. Let's say we've laid the foundation theologically in chapters one through eleven. Now we've laid the foundation practically in verses one and two. We're ready to live the Christian life. We've started out. And where do you think, in the mind of the Apostle Paul, our first step would be? Now, if you didn't know what comes next, you might say, and I would be with you, you might say, it took me right into the world. And the Apostle Paul was telling me, this is how you are meant to live in the world. I had just told you don't be conformed to the world, and now I'm going to tell you how to interact with the world in which you live. And it's true, Paul will get to that. He'll get there in chapter 13, especially. He'll say, this is how I want you to function in society, and this is uh, in verses 1 through uh, 7, and then verses 8 through 11, I want you to be, or let's see, it's more than that even, it's uh, verses 8 through 14, I want you to be uh, an example of holiness in this dark world in which you live, but that isn't where he begins. The first step that the Christian takes, and it makes sense immediately once you think of it, is into the church where the Christian is called to consider his relationship, his new relationship, with other Christian people. Again, isn't that interesting and almost surprising that he starts there? And really, I think we could say, if we look at what he says throughout the application, chapters 12, 14, and 15 deal with the Christian in the church, not in the world. Not chapter 13, in the world, but chapters 12, 14, and 15. The Christian in the world. I wonder if we're surprised by that. And why is that? Well, if we just think about it, 
I think we can answer that question with very little difficulty. The answer is that the the real trouble, and indeed the greatest trouble we find in living the Christian life, the kind of life that was outlined in verses 1 and 2, is found more in the church than in the world. We find greater difficulty living as Christians among Christians than we do in the world. Isn't that surprising? And yet, that seems to be the emphasis here. That's the real trouble, the real problem that the the Apostle Paul wants to address. And not only here in chapters 12 through 15, but throughout the New Testament, that is what you find. The majority of the exhortations given in the epistles to the churches concern how Christians are to relate to one another in the church. Why was that? Not because it was easy but because it was hard, not because they were succeeding, but because they were failing all the time. And as the apostles went about, as we read in Acts, visiting these churches, and as they received reports, they were continually receiving reports that though there was a wonderful revival that happened in all these cities and many were converted and new churches were formed, nonetheless, just as soon as they came together, there was problem upon problem upon problem. And so these epistles were written just as the apostles went and revisited the churches in order to address the many problems That were found there. The main difficulty, therefore, which we find in the New Testament era, that Christians found wasn't getting along with one another within the church. They were thrust into this new position. They were given a new relation with a new group of people. And there were bound to be many questions and problems that arose in this new life together. And you see... That was not only what the first Christians found in the church. It has always been what every Christian has found in every age as he seeks to live out the Christian life. Getting along with other Christians. Living as one people together. I I could say, I think I'm speaking fairly of every pastor I know. That the majority of his efforts in the church, aside from the work of preaching, which is his first task, is taken up with this questions, how, this question, rather, how to get the members of the church to get along, how to get the members of the church to relate to one another as Christians. You remember what Spurgeon said famously, I, I find at times you act like angels at other times like devils. It's that sort of thing that the pastor is contending with and that the Christian is contending with. He, the Christian might have thought and the pastor might have thought in the church everything will be easy. In the world it will be hard. But that isn't what he finds. If you've lived the Christian life for any amount of time, then I am certain that your experience has already confirmed this truth. The thing that vexes you most aside from your own sin. Let that be the thing that vexes you most always. And that will keep you humble. But beside that, it is how to get along with other Christians in the church. Now, there have been some historically who have been so vexed by this question. They have been so disturbed by what they see in the church and in their fellow Christians. That they simply go out of the church. They're driven right out of the church. The most famous example of this, in my opinion, is that of Arthur Pink. Now, I've read his biography by Ian Murray. <laughs> Ian Murray does as good a job as he can uh, to, to, to vener- venerate and, and justify Pink's actions. He, he was in many respects a great man, but we cannot, certainly I cannot help but find fault with him here 
If you read his biography, and many of you know this, though he was a great theologian, and though many of his writings were responsible for bringing about a revival of Reformed thought in the 20th century, nevertheless, he must be faulted, he and his wife, for their uh, ceasing attending church. That is, I think we can all agree, a false solution to the problem. But it illustrates the difficulty. A man like Pink, whom in many respects we can't help but admire, nevertheless, we read this about him, he ended his life, he and his wife, not attending church. You see, it's easy to become like them. It's easy to become so discouraged by the difficulties you find in a place like this that you're driven right out. But the Apostle Paul says, and I am saying, however many difficulties we confront here, or we will confront in years to come, we must not give up. We must not become so discouraged and so demoralized that we are like Arthur Pink and his wife sitting alone, reading their Bibles on Sundays, failing to meet with other believers, even as Scripture commands us to do. Well, I'm saying that's the greatest trouble that the Christian finds, both at the beginning as he comes into the church, but especially as he goes on to live the Christian life. More and more he realizes whether that is the Apostle Paul or Arthur Pink or you, that what he thought he would find in the church, he really didn't find. I thought these people would be like saints, like angels, and yet at times I find they're like devils. That is something that utterly uh, discourages and demoralizes. It's a problem that you'll never outrun. It's a problem the early church, even with the effusion of the Spirit poured out, was unable completely to solve. It chased her everywhere she went. But if we understand that's the real problem confronting this church and every church in every age. And we even saw in Sunday school how the reformers were, were trying to achieve unity and completely unable to do so. We need to see how the Apostle Paul deals with it, acknowledging it as the central problem facing the church in every age. What is the scriptural answer or prescription for this problem? And perhaps. If we follow scriptural counsel, we will be less vexed as Christians by this problem. We will enjoy a greater measure of unity and peace and love. We will find greater success getting along as Christian people. I think we can all agree. I hope we can all agree that no teaching would be of more value to us if only we had the grace to put it into practice. Well, I would begin as the apostle does with his conception of the church. And I think that's the true starting point. The trouble, as I was indicating last Sunday night, is that we often have misconceptions about the church. And this, in turn, leads to error in our practice. So in beginning to confront this difficulty, we've got to have a clear conception in our minds as to what the church is and then what she is meant to be practically. Can we at least agree that according to the New Testament, and I hope as well in your own hearts, I can say in my own heart, that the church is critically important. Can we agree on that as our starting point? You see, right away, the modern Christian is in trouble because he doesn't see this. He, he doesn't think of Christianity in terms of the church. He thinks of Christianity in terms of himself. And that's, in many ways, the worst possible starting point you could have, as I hope to point out. He thinks of salvation 
in terms of himself and his own experience. But that misses, and you see here's where the gospel comes in, that misses an essential hallmark of the work of Christ. I didn't say the essential, but I said an essential hallmark of the work of Christ. And that is he came to redeem his bride. Ephesians chapter 5. In other words, he didn't come to redeem an individual. That isn't how he speaks of his work. But a people for himself. John chapter 10. I lay down my life for my sheep. And by my own authority, I rise it up again. You think not only of John chapter 10, but what Christ prays in his high priestly prayer. uh, A portrait of what he's praying even now in his high priestly uh, ministry of intercession as he ever lives to intercede for the church. He is praying that we might be one even as He and his father are one. He's praying not only for his bride, but for her unity and for her purity. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He calls them. He gathers them. He prays for them. Beyond that, if you think of what he says to Peter in John chapter 1, Peter, do you love me more than these shepherd or feed my sheep? So he sets shepherds over his sheep in order to care for them in his bodily, though not spiritual, absence. Still, he is with the church by his Holy Spirit, the bodily he's in heaven. And part of the way he cares for her is by putting men like Peter and Paul over the church. And so what's the church? Well, there's many answers to this question. One which I just gave. The church is the bride of Christ. Or it's like a a fold of sheep. But here's the emphasis That comes out both in Romans 12 and in Ephesians and in 1 Corinthians. The church is a body. And more particularly, it's the body of Christ. And if you know anything about what Paul says in Ephesians 5, that makes perfect sense. Because when a man and his bride are joined together, they're joined as one flesh. They become one body. And so really to say that the church is the bride of Christ is to say that the church is the body of Christ, which is exactly what the apostle says here. The, The church is one body in Christ. So that our conception of the church must be that Christian believers collectively form the body of Christ, he being the head of the body. And this is critical in defining what our relation is to him as our head, first and foremost, and then to one another as members of the same body. In other words, how are we to relate to Christ, number one, and then how are we to relate to one another? How are we to get along as Christians within the church? Here is Paul's answer. For as verse four, as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Note the emphasis. We, though many, when considered as individuals, compose one body in Christ. That's the phrase he uses, one body in Christ. Yes, many members, but only one body. In other words, you don't have many bodies. You only have one body. Don't, I'm going to come back to this at the end. Do not think of particular churches as particular bodies of Christ. That is an error. That is not scriptural. There is but one body of Christ, though many members of the body. And so fundamentally and essentially, the church is one. And the unity that she enjoys is spiritual. It's invisible. It is not visible and institutional, not primarily at least. It is spiritual and invisible. There is 
Yes, a visible side to this that we call the visible church, but that isn't primary in our conception of the church. The visible church is a manifestation of the invisible church. And it should be obvious to us why this is important with the emphasis of, uh, especially in the prior century, but Christians are still talking like this today, the emphasis of the ecumenical movement. We've got to get Christians to get along, and they need to join together all in one worldwide institution. That is to think of the the church institutionally. That is what Calvin had to rebut in the Reformation, the unity that we enjoy, he said, with the early church, the apostles and the church fathers is not institutional. It's spiritual. It's that we share the same faith with them. And, you know, the irony is that the Roman Catholic Church, though it has a kind of institutional unity, is totally out of step spiritually with the New Testament and the apostles. No, you don't start with the visible institution. Do you know Israel did the same thing? Israel thought of the nation rather than of the spiritual family. As Paul would say, there's the natural, then there's the spiritual Israel. That's Romans chapter 9. The, the emphasis in all of the Bible was never on the outward institution, whether the family, the nation, or the church, but it was always on the spiritual family that God called his own. And that's what the church is in every age, the invisible church. Uh, I, I can't think of a better definition than we find straight away in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25 of the church, section 1. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him, That filleth all in all. The church is the body of Christ. And the ideal, according to this conception, is that of a visible unity and harmony between believers, all believers. You begin with the invisible church, then you you arrive at the visible church. By the way, that's what the confession does. The next section, 25 section 2, deals with the visible church. I'll get to that soon. There is this invisible spiritual unity that is to manifest itself visibly. There are many members, but only one body. And each member of the body has got to function in such a way that he's contributing to the overall well-being of the whole. That's the exhortation here. But in practice, as we find ourselves in particular churches, and this is what we find in the New Testament, so it's what we find today. In practice, we often fall short of this ideal Instead of harmony and peace and unity in the church, we find strife and division and discord. That's what Paul found. That's what we often find. And instead of reflecting our essential spiritual union with Christ and one another, in practice, we deny it completely. Do you understand then why the issue is so pressing and why so much of the New Testament is taken up with this idea, urging the members of various churches To get along, plain and simple. I want you to live as one. I want you to be of the same mind. I want you to enjoy the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Ephesians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 2, on and on and on we could go. Every epistle, that's what the, the apostles were urging for. Unity among the believers. And that is the thought which Paul is expressing here. He is urging, he is exhorting, he is beseeching by the mercies of God. Get along, beloved. Well, seeing that as the ideal in the second place, 
the ideal and the goal to which we must all aspire, look at the helps he gives. And there are five or six helps that he gives. His starting point is grace. No surprise there. For I say through the grace given to me. And then later in verse six, he speaks of gifts differing according to grace that is given to us. So he could either speak of grace given to him or he could speak of grace uh, given to every believer. The point is grace has been given to the church. Grace has been given to everyone who is in the church, uh, to every believer. That's what grace is. It's a gift. It isn't something you earn. It's something that's given. And so you, you, can, you can only speak of grace in this way. According to the grace given to me. According to the grace given to you. Verse 6. In this context, when he speaks of grace, uh, the commentaries uh, debate this point, but they all arrive where I'm arriving. And that is the context here is the grace of the gifts quite clearly. The gifts of the spirit which are dispensed or measured out to each one by God himself. Everyone in the church, Paul says, has got a measure of faith. The measure of faith is simply another way of speaking of the measure of grace by which each has his own gift from God. Grace is the way of speaking of God's side, the giving of the gift, and faith refers to us, the receiving of the gift. So both expressions convey the same idea, that of grace, which is a gift, which faith receives. You could speak of these things then interchangeably, the measure of our Faith or the measure of our grace, it's just a way of speaking of the grace which was measured out to us. Our own particular gift from God. You ask me, are you going to say more about the gifts? Yes, next time. (laughs) Not this time. So if you have questions about the gifts, you'll have to wait. But this is just our starting point. A gift, a spiritual gift is something that was given to you by God as the result of grace. It's a grace. You think of what Paul later says. Of himself, And he's speaking about his ministry, which is the exercise of his particular grace as an apostle among the churches. I am what I am by the grace of God. He doesn't say, you know, I am what I am because I've worked so hard. He even mentions that later on. I labored more than most and yet not I, but the grace which was at work in me. And so Paul is saying, whatever your particular place in the church, you ought to labor as strongly as you can. You ought to make as much of a contribution as you possibly can, but never be given to boasting. The more you labor in the church, the more you are driven to the conclusion, I am what I am by the grace of God. And even if I should find, by comparison to others, I am laboring more, I realize it wasn't me, but it was the grace of God in me. Whatever you have in the church is the result of grace. That has got to be your starting point, both now and 10 years from now. And if you don't see that, then you will fall into legalism. That will become the framing of the Christian life and of the church and your relation to other Christians. And that will become a kind of cancer that will rot away the Christian fellowship that perhaps you currently enjoy. You've got to take away every ground of boasting in yourself. The Apostle Paul uh, talks about this in another place, First Timothy chapter two, verse, chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. I don't think we have time to look at that. But even then, you see, he glories not in himself, but in the grace and the mercy of God. I do want to read something from John Owen. He talks about the grace of the gifts. And he says, the gifts without the grace become a snare. A person, he says, who trusts in his abilities to pray may find prayer is actually destroying his soul. Prayer born of gifts and not of grace will do just that in the end. 
When gifts are used to stir up grace, they are wonderfully used. But if gifts take the place of grace, they damage our souls. And they also damage Christian fellowship. I think that puts it as beautifully and as wonderfully as any. We ought to always see the gifts as a grace and the exercise of them in a gracious way. The stirring up of grace in our souls and in the souls of others. Not the stirring up of something fleshly, you see. A man can preach, a man can pray beautifully and wonderfully just to puff up himself. That's what Owen is saying. Rather than to stir up grace in his own soul and that of others. And so instead of building up his soul and others, he's destroying it. Well, that's the first point, grace. The second point is that we notice Paul begins with himself. With his own example and his own authority. Before he gets to us, he begins with I. Now that's helpful because it gives us a reference point. And Paul often does this. He often starts with himself. We could ask, has he immediately defeated his own point? Has he placed himself above his brothers? No. He's eager to to, to show us, both here and elsewhere, that he is part of this too. That's the reason he does that. I'm not talking about you in distinction from me. I'm talking about us. And so I begin with himself. That's a helpful thing for the preacher to do always, to remind his people that he's involved in this as well. And he's saying both here and in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, which I quoted earlier, and in many other places, he's saying, here's my particular contribution to the church. In the exercise of the authority and the apostleship which, which Christ has given to me as a gift of grace, my particular contribution is to remind you always of the need for unity and peace and harmony among believers. That is how he exercises authority in the church. You see, authority was not in those days, nor is it today, a bad thing. It is the exercising of a gift which is bestowed by the Spirit. And he exercises authority in such a way that he called the church in an authoritative way to hear the words of the Lord and admonishing them to unity. He did not use it to build himself up, but the church. That is the proper use. Number three. That's the proper use of every gift, by the way. Number three, we see there's a fundamental equality among believers. God has dealt to each one, everyone. That's the language here. In other words, no one is excluded. And what Paul is saying here, no one in the church stands above his peers, not even Paul. If there is any hierarchy in the church, it is of office and not of persons. Now, it is clear that equality here scripturally does not mean we're all the same. People try to make it mean that today, but that is a very poor use of the word. The idea here is that though all differ, everyone has a different measure of grace. Grace is measured to one according to this and to another according to that. All, though they have a different measure, all have a place in the body and a particular role to play. In other words, the way to achieve unity in practice is never to think of your brother in such a way that he's less than you or beneath you. You see, Paul didn't do that either. It is to see him as your brother and as your sister in Christ. Someone who's standing beside you. Someone who's a member of the same body. Someone who enjoys unity with you in that sense. Yes, his role, her role might be different than yours. Of course, it's bound to be. That's what the body's like, Paul says. And we'll see more of that next time. But nevertheless, each part has a role to play. Everyone has value. Even those parts you might have thought, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, which are, are lesser and of no account. How important every member is of the body. That's what Paul is saying. There's unity. There's equality. And the way to achieve unity is to see the fundamental equality. It's to see your brother as standing beside you, not beneath you. Even if you happen to be an apostle. Number four. Have low thoughts of self. 
Think soberly. You see, the problem is pride. The problem is that every one of us thinks too highly of himself. In fact, let me even state it more simply than that. We think too much of ourselves. The, the first fundamental problem of every Christian is just that he thought of himself too much. And then as he considered his own self and the gifting that he had from God and the wonderful contribution that he was able to make of the church, well, you see, he's beginning to be puffed up with pride. Do you understand that's why uh, the men that God used greatest in the history of the church, he also sends awful trials and thorns into their lives? Because, you see, even a man like Paul was apt to be elated. And God just kept humbling over and over and over again. He did the same with Edwards and Whitfield and all of his servants whom we would consider mighty in his hands. Have low thoughts of yourself. No one is to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. You ought not to think of yourself in isolation from the church. Because you're a member of the church of Christ. You cannot divorce yourself as a Christian you see from Christ as your head, nor from his body. Just as soon as you've done that, you've gone wrong in your thinking. You ought to not think high thoughts of yourself. You should always think of yourself and your gifts in terms of the church and the contribution that you are able to make. But you see, the same is true of your brother. You ought, in thinking lowly of yourself, you ought not to think too lowly of your brother. No, you are to think soberly. Have sober judgment about yourself, but about your brother. You ought to recognize. Now, wait a second. I realize that I'm not the only one with a gift. God has dealt to each a measure of faith. That means sober judgment not only makes me think less of myself, but it makes me begin to value my brother and to see the contribution that he is able to make along with me. I might also say, as an implied point, no one is to think too lowly of himself. You see, there are Christians who think too highly of themselves, but there are also Christians who say, I have no part to play. I have no gift. That is to despise your own particular gift. To say that I have no place in the church is not humility. It is not low thoughts of self. It is actually denying the teaching of this passage. It is not a sober or right judgment. It is a false judgment. Each one, Paul says, has his own gift from God. If he's a Christian, that includes everyone. And so it's equally wrong for you to despise yourself as it is for you to, to despise and to demean others in the church. No, sober judgment keeps us from denying any man his place in the body, including ourselves, while at the same time keeps us from making too much of anyone, including ourselves. You see, now Christians do this today. They, they've fallen over the celebrity preacher. Well, that denies this passage, passage too. You can make too much of yourself. You can make too much of... Your favorite preacher. That's always the danger. You've got to think lowly of yourself and of others in the right way. You've got to be sober about it. You've got to give every man the same place within the body. Well, I think that's enough uh, for now on that point. Let me close with this. As a third point... To see that the fundamental idea being expressed about the church as one body in Christ concerns the universal church. Let us see that as the teaching of the passage. The question then is how are we to view the local church? Because that's where we find ourselves and that's where all this is being worked out in practice. The local church in particular. 
Well, the local church is a particular manifestation of the universal church, which is the body of Christ. The universal church is the body of Christ. The local church is a particular manifestation of it. This is what the confession says. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before the law, before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now, just note, even then it says that the visible church is universal. It is a particular or it is a visible manifestation of the universal invisible church. But as particular churches, we are particular manifestations of that. Here's what I mean. You cannot say that Calvary OPC is the body of Christ. You would be wrong if you said that. You can only say it's part of it. Because the body of Christ includes all believers everywhere through all time. And so you can't possibly exhaust or include all that is meant by the church by one congregation. But it is in the local church that you find yourselves. So what are we to do? How are we to relate to this principle? Of the universal church that is one. And here I'm only beginning to answer the question. The following sermons will also be devoted to this question. But for now, this is my answer. Let us realize as members of the body, the one body of Christ, that the church is far greater than this one congregation. That's our starting point. The church is far greater than this one congregation. I often say that I thank God that the kingdom of God is greater than Calvary. And to this day, I thank God for that. Some of you have suggested, perhaps I don't, but I do. I promise you. That is a point that is very dear to me. And it's a point that God has made dear to me. Listen to me. We are not like Elijah, who imagined himself to be the only one left. No. God has many members of this body in all places. And just as he showed the Apostle Paul that and Elijah that, so he's showing us that. And what this means is that any man... Who is a believer in Christ is my brother. He, like me, is a member of the same body. We are even, to use the Apostle Paul's expression here, members of one another. He belongs to you. You belong to him. We belong to each other. We enjoy this blessed unity as members of the same spiritual body. Practically, I am saying to Reformed Christians... That the teaching here ought to make us broad churchmen, not narrow churchmen. Broad churchmen. The narrow churchman despises the work of God in other communions. But the broad churchman is happy to see God working across a vast spectrum of believers. He thanks God that the kingdom of God is greater than his particular corner of Christianity. I do not mean, do not misunderstand me. I do not mean he is happy about sin in the church and he has nothing to say about it. This is not a kind of false optimism. There is plenty today to make us mourn for what we see in other churches. And still, I and you are able to find great joy in the fact that God is at work in other congregations. We are able to enjoy union and unity with other believers in other denominations. I find great joy personally in the fact that the pastors across the street And I consider each other friends and brothers. 
And from time to time, we have lunch together. From time to time, I might even call the, 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 the pastor there, Rod, and ask him for advice. He's my brother. I'm his brother. You see, we're enjoying a kind of unity. That doesn't mean, and this is a false solution, it doesn't mean, well, suddenly we're agreed on all points. You know, sometimes he and I talk and we disagree. And yet still we call each other brother. That's what I'm talking about here. Do you rejoice to see God at work at Grace Baptist Church across the street? And so I'm saying we ought to denounce sin when we see it. But we also ought to see a measure of unity with others to make this unity visible, not by compromising what we believe. I don't ask the members of grace to become Presbyterian, and yet I'm still able to call them brothers. Do you see the point? I think of what was true of Whitfield and Wesley in the first great awakening, the kind of unity they shared as brothers, that they differed very strongly on the points of predestination. Or Luther and Calvin in the Reformation, you do not have to agree on all points, but you can still have a heart for unity with your fellow Christian brothers and sisters. And this is something that you always see when the Spirit is at work in the church, that the Spirit makes us not narrow churchmen, but broad churchmen. And I think that's a message that we Reformed Presbyterians especially need to hear. Am I saying, as my closing point, that we regard the mainline churches in the same way? Or the Roman Catholic Church? You see, sometimes people go too far with this. Well, to answer that, not at all. With them, we have no union or unity. A Christian is someone, you remember, who has a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. He's connected to the head by faith. That's what a Christian is. And the point here is that everyone who has that same relationship with Jesus Christ is my brother. It does not mean that because of some institution that I regard someone who denies that same faith in Jesus Christ as my brother known. I certainly do not. That's why, again, we don't focus on institutions, but upon a shared faith and a shared interest in Jesus Christ. I might disagree with my brother on things like church government. I might disagree with my brother on things like predestination. And yet, if he shares the same faith as I, then he is my brother. Let us see, beloved, that there is a real communion of the saints. That's the chapter that follows, by the way, in the Westminster Confession of the church and then of the communion of the saints, which in many ways to me is just an expression of the same truth. Why is there a communion of the saints? Because of their shared union with Jesus Christ as their head. And that communion is very broad. It passes over denominational and national and racial lines. Here is the glory and the beauty of the Christian church, beloved. Her unity, that she is one, though many members, one body in Christ. And so Christ prayed that we might be one, even as he is one with his Father in heaven. That's where we've got to start, our conception of the church. And we aren't finished with this idea. We've only just begun. But I would say enough for now, for one sermon more to come in the sermons to come. Amen. And let us come to the table.